0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network.
1: You're listening to episode 322 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Kelly Sutton is a software engineer, Gusto, on their application infrastructure team. He lives in San Francisco with his wife and their small dog, Greta. Kelly has been UV on Rails for about 15 years. You can follow him on Twitter, at Kelly Sutton, or find him at kellysutton.com. Welcome to the show, Kelly.
0: Thanks for having me, Brittany. Glad to be here.
1: Kelly, what is your developer origin story?
0: Uh, yep, yeah. so I, I like to say I learned how to use a computer before I knew how to ride my bicycle without training wheels. And the rest of my life is just filling in the blanks. Um, I've been fortunate or privileged enough, really, to uh, have a great education and and uh, parents who were engineers, and I had access to technology from a very young age. Uh, so I've always been tinkering with computers uh, since I was very young, um, and then you know just filling in the gaps. Ended up getting a computer science degree uh, at university and uh, entered the workforce as a software engineer after that.
1: Awesome. So what is your specific experience with Ruby on Rails? Uh,
0: so I've been writing Rails professionally for about 10 years, tinkering for about 15. Um, Rails is, you know, my, my bread and butter. It's what I mostly write in. Uh, I've had different jobs over the years where I've used different technologies, but Rails is always the one that I, uh, is always the one that I come back to. Um, I think it's a great, uh, it's a great framework that just removes a lot of the, uh, accidental complexity of developing web applications for you. So, uh, I guess my, my experience has always just been, I, I, I love Rails and I love, uh, I love seeing it grow and mature and I love the community. Like the, there's no, there's no better like community out there than the Rails community in my, in my book, so.
1: So I'm going to quiz you a little bit. Do you happen to recall the version Rails was at when you first started tinkering with it?
0: It was definitely in the the script slash days, so pre-bundler. Um, I probably first installed it in, like, 2005. Uh, didn't do much with it until 2008 when I, like, used it for a college project. And that was... I remember, like, Merb and... Rails three was happening around that time, but it was still like a uh what was it script was it script slash install was the way that you vendor dependencies
1: So I've said this on the show before, but I think that we should design a custom patch for anyone who's upgraded from Rails two just because it can <laughs> be very challenging, so I'm glad to hear you didn't miss out on that
0: uh well, thankfully, I never had to take an application from two to three so.
1: Okay, uh, well, we're revoking your patch then. Yeah, so.
0: <laughs> <I'll>... <laughs> I guess I, w- I won't be able to add that one to my, to my merit badge sash here.
1: Okay, well, I've seen a lot of great content from Gusto on all aspects of Ruby on Rails, but would love to hear more about Gusto's technical stack, but maybe even starting with what Gusto is. Could you tell me more?
0: Sure. So Gusto, uh, we call ourselves the people platform for small businesses. So uh, the company's been around uh, for about eight years now uh and it it was really founded with one idea in mind and it's that running a small business uh, and running payroll for a small business should be a lot easier than it is Uh, so we were one of the first like web applications that allowed you to run payroll online Um, and fast forward a few years you know we now offer uh, uh, benefits so uh, for the listeners not in the u.s health insurance uh, and dental insurance and vision insurance is something that's offered through your employer. Uh, so it's very tied to your payroll systems. And we offer some other benefits as well, and then a lot of uh, HR and reporting functionality on top of that for small businesses. Uh, currently, we have the honor of serving 1% of small businesses in the United States, uh, and we move you know billions of dollars a month uh, with our little Ruby on Rails application here.
1: That's amazing. What other technologies, frameworks, anything else that you use at Gusto?
0: Uh, so we're a, uh, I, would, I would categorize us as a Ruby on Rails monolith that speaks mostly JSON uh, to a single page application, which is written in React um, with any organization or uh, yeah any software organization of our size. There's going to be caveats to that. You know, it's not only JSON, there's some HTML. It's not only React, there's some, you know, legacy backbone in there. Um, but for the most part, that's generally the shape of, uh, of software development at Gusto.
1: So Kelly, what does it mean to be on the application infrastructure team?
0: Right, so I think that an application infrastructure team or, or something like a developer experience team is a, it's a, it's a symptom of, of success to some degree. So as an organization grows, uh, as a company like Gusto grows, uh, there are going to be a lot of different teams uh, working on different uh, technologies um, and different parts of the product uh, at your company. So application infrastructure is really designed to fill in the gaps. We like to think of ourselves as the people who are maybe you know, laying plumbing for a city or paving the roads so that everyone else can build uh, skyscrapers, right? Um, so our responsibilities day to day are things like, you know, making sure we're on the latest version of Rails uh, making sure that we're on the latest versions of Ruby. Um, f- working with teams to safely experiment with new technologies or new patterns within our monolith. Uh, and then once we have a few that that crop up, we also pay, play to some degree like the role of of natural selection saying, okay, we have three different, you know uh, templating languages. let's let's reduce that down to one, right So, Uh, We tend to take a security mindset, keeping dependencies up to date while also consolidating the number of choices that a typical developer needs to make uh, while working at Gusto.
1: So I'd love to ask you some more questions about upgrading to Rails and Ruby. Do you have any sort of built-in cushion that you do before you upgrade Rails and Ruby, just in case there's any security issues or any sort of issues that might pop up? Or do you tend to be on the bleeding edge at all times?
0: uh so recently we just finished our upgrade to rails six which felt really good because before that we were on like four one or four two or something like that so over the last year we've gone from four two to rails six and so that's that's been the app infra or sorry the the a- application infrastructure team um uh, that's really owned that uh, owned that effort and we've been Uh, really helped out by a few, as I call them, agents from a contracting firm called Test Double. Um, So we've, uh, Test Double has kind of come in and helped us navigate that and help kind of like build like a little framework for upgrading Rails, if that makes sense. Uh, So that we upgrade Rails a little bit at a time as we go. Um, And we're just constantly upgrading now. Uh, instead of doing like one huge PR, right? So our our goal with like the Rails upgrades is always making the, making the pull request that actually does the upgrade as small as possible. Right? If we've if we've done our job right, uh, it should just be changing the gem file, right? Uh, and then there are a lot of like you know components to that strategy. Like we'll run CI in both the new version and the old version for like a few weeks, um, so that develop so that folks working in the monolith know, like, ooh, you just introduced something that's not Rails 6 compatible, Uh, you're going to need to deal with that uh, right now rather than four weeks from now when something breaks mysteriously.
1: That makes sense. So I love to reach out to potential podcast guests based on a specific blog post or another podcast they were on, or really just any sort of reasoning to bring someone on. I'd like to vary up those reasons, but I get really excited when I invite a guest onto the show and they have other things that they want to talk about as well. So I'd like to dive into that. So as someone who's always trying to improve their own testing skills, can you tell me a little bit about Test Deciderata and if I pronounce that correctly?
0: Uh, yes, you, you got it. Test, desir- test Desiderata. It's a, it's a mouthful, but you can just start typing test D-E-S, and then Google usually fills in the rest. Um, so Test Desiderata uh, was something that my colleague Kent uh, Beck came up with, uh, which he was just writing a blog post about the desirable properties of tests and maybe the different trade-offs that we make when writing tests. Um, and he turned that into a blog post and it was, it was, uh, one of his more like successful blog posts and we were chatting, uh, and I don't, you know, I, you can never remember who came up with the idea, but we somehow said like, you know what, let's do an episode for each one of these, like a three to five minute episode. So we, uh, turned this blog post into a, like a 12 part video series where we talk about, you know, what does it mean to say that a test is uh, behavior sensitive? Uh, or structure independent and why do we want that in our tests and uh, as I'm writing tests day to date what am I optimizing for here um, and what trade-offs might I be making uh, with the different ways that I might be writing tests
1: those sound fantastic where can listeners access those videos
0: uh, you can go to testdesiderata.com uh, or just search testdesiderata on YouTube and there's a there's a playlist there
1: now I imagine all the videos are a must watch, but out of all the videos, which one do you think will impact our listeners the most?
0: So I think if you're, let's let's assume like you're just kind of getting started to testing or you've tried testing in the past and you found it very frustrating. Uh, specifically, you had a green build but something was broken in production. That's the worst feeling with a test suite because you just don't trust it at all. Um, so I'd really recommend that folks start with our our episode on behavior sensitive. Like what does it mean to have tests that are behavior sensitive um, and structure insensitive? And so once you, even just like learning that language and learning how it applies to tests, you'll begin to understand in the past for me, like, like, okay, why, why is my test suite green, but my product is broken? Like the test, tests are green, but the site is down, right? Um, uh, it, it starts to help you reason about uh, what are my tests doing for me? Uh, and am I am I holding and using this tool correctly? Um, so that's where, where I'd recommend folks start. And then uh, if you like it, keep watching it.
1: Excellent. We will link all of that in the show notes. Now, I am eager to ask you about a recent blog post that you wrote, Kelly, but we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor, Raygun. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Raygun is thrilled to launch the next chapter in their ongoing support for application performance monitoring. Ruby support for Raygun APM. Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. They have end-to-end monitoring with features like detailed trace transactions, dashboards, user experience monitoring, and more. Raygun APM offers a seamless integration with the Heroku platform via Buildpack, so you can get all the benefits of APM for your Rails application. To start your free 14-day trial, go check it out by visiting raygun.com slash rg slash ruby apm today. I promise I will link that in the show notes. Thank you, Raygun, for sponsoring the show. Back to you, Kelly. So I want to discuss your latest blog post from 25 minutes to 7 minutes, improving the performance of a Rails CI pipeline. So can you tell me what happened to Gusto when the Paycheck Protection Program was passed?
0: Sure. So... For for the archive, we're we're recording this in June 2020, um, and so this is the this is the year that uh, the COVID 19 pandemic uh, affected the world. Um, uh, it's been it's been a very difficult time, I think, for a lot of a lot of people and and especially small businesses. So, you know, this pandemic has closed entire industries overnight, so uh, restaurants, corner stores, uh, uh, they've just shuttered, right? Uh, Along with much larger businesses, Um, and so our our customers are are the small businesses here, Um, and the the US government, uh, Congress, uh, passed a law uh, called the CARES Act, and a part of that was uh, something known as PPP, or the Paycheck Protection Program. And so this is a, a set of funds, 350 billion with a B dollars uh, that small businesses could access. And it's remarkable because it's a loan that gets forgiven. So it's a, it's a loan that becomes free money provided that you keep people on payroll. So this is designed to uh, keep businesses kind of somewhat in place, like structurally in place and their employees getting paid. Um, at the time recording, this has been needed to like be refilled a few times. $350, $350 billion was not enough. Um, and so that first wave of funds, $350 billion was not enough, which meant time was so important for these small businesses. If you could file sooner, uh, you were more likely to, uh, get access to, uh, these loans. Um. And one of the precursors for getting access to these loans was to generate a report and work with your bank, uh, which just had payroll information in it. And so, us as a payroll provider, uh, we had our engineers, you know, burning the midnight oil, staying up all night to get this done. And I think we were the first payroll provider in the country uh, to get this in front of our users, uh, so that they, as soon as the gates opened, they could file. Um, And I think a big, something that had to do with that is just the improvements that we've been making to our build infrastructure. Um, I mean, it's the great engineers that we have, but uh, being able to turn around code uh, and ship it to production multiple times a day uh, really helps too.
1: That's incredible, and yes, I heard many unfortunate horror stories about banks and payroll providers just not being ready because this was very short notice, and unfortunately some businesses missed out because of it. So I'm glad to hear that you were able to support your customers, and kudos to your engineers for shipping that so quickly. So as part of your blog post, you detail how you were able to increase the performance of your CI. So what did you do to improve your CI pipeline?
0: Yeah. So part of yeah part of shipping code to production at Gusto is that all of the tests need to pass, um, and we run our tests in a, a CI pipeline. Uh, the provider that we use is called Buildkite, which allows for uh, allows to, like parallelize certain jobs. Um, you know, kind of this like fan in, fan out model. Um, but whether it's Buildkite or any other provider, they're they're going to offer you this. So um, we approached so. I'll, I'll back up. Uh, so about a year ago, um, our builds were taking 25 minutes sometimes, 45 minutes sometimes, they were failing a lot, right? So we had a lot of flaky tests where uh, the code hadn't changed, but the tests were somehow failing. Uh, and developing code was a, a pretty frustrating experience for your typical Gusto developer. And so this Right, we formed this application infrastructure team to kind of fill in the gaps and, and pave those streets, as we say. Um, and we focused on CI health. Um, and so at the end of it, we were able to bring uh, the CI runtime from a median of 25 minutes down to seven minutes um, for an extremely large Rails application. Um, but we were also able to you know decrease the flake rate um, and so on and so forth. And so we, we went about that in three steps. Uh, first, we made it work. Next, we made it right, and then finally, we made it fast.
1: This sounds familiar. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So I'll I can I'll dive into each each one of those steps. So f- so for making it making it work, what what that meant for us is really just making sure that uh, we got rid of the flakes, and and I think anyone looking to improve their CI uh, or like build health like you don't want to optimize for speed right away you just want to make sure that you have predictable results we decided as a company that flaky tests had negative value and so we're just going to mark them as skipped we're not going to delete the tests we're just going to mark them as skipped so at the very least the build is going to be consistently green um, and then after that teams uh, went back through and investigated these, uh on their own time but you know an individual team uh, isn't getting in the way of the whole organization being able to ship uh, next up is we we made it right so over time and I having worked in a few large rails code bases um, it can be tempting and sometimes easy to revert some of the defaults that uh, great frameworks like RSpec give us um, and once you revert those defaults, you start to see things like test pollution or tests being order dependent. Um, and so making it right for us, once we had a consistently green build, was to just get back on those RSpec defaults. Uh, it was to randomize test order once again, um, to shake out some of this like test order dependence. And once we would see a failure there, we would mark that test as a flake or something nearby uh, as a test flake. Um, And after doing that, we had a much more resilient and robust uh, suite of tests, uh, which we could then reliably parallelize um, because the order of them didn't matter anymore. So then we move on to uh, our last step, which is we make it fast. Uh, So now that we're confident that any test can be run in any order and they're not independent or they're not uh, order dependent or interdependent at all, we can run them all in isolation. We could do something as extreme if we wanted to, as running all forty-four thousand tests on individual virtual machines. Uh, if we wanted to make things as fast as possible, but it would also cost you know a million dollars a month. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but it was really you know our uh, our our dial to move up and down um, as far as like how much parallelism we wanted to extract out of there. Um, and so now we have a, so now making it fast is just a function of, okay, how much money do we want to spend on this, right? How much do we value it? Which uh, I think is, a, is an important like milestone in uh, doing software engineering, which is if you can limit the inputs uh, to things that are very simple uh, for things that have business impact, like how quickly can software engineers ship code uh, that's a great position to be in because then it's a really simple like one one parameter function of like okay if we want to spend a uh, hundred dollars a day on builds uh, what does that mean for our engineering productivity does that make sense if we increase that to 500 what does that mean right and so we're able to make some really great simple trade-offs there. or uh, or uh, navigate that discussion actually.
1: I think that's so interesting that you approach, you know, how you were going to handle parallelism based on the value of having those tests run quickly. I think that's so smart because there is definitely a business value in being able to ship code quickly. But of course, you're right. You don't want to spend a million dollars to run individual machines for each test.
0: Yeah, like like with everything, there is a point of diminishing returns. Right. Uh, We had a we had a hunch that it could be a lot better uh, and that we wouldn't mind paying a little bit more for it.
1: Interesting. So I'm curious, did you make the improvements for your CI pipeline before the Rails 6 upgrade, or was it after? Uh,
0: it was kind of all at once. Um, yeah, we were kind of doing everything all at once. Yeah, we're doing a Rails upgrade, but also, um, a lot of these improvements to the CI pipeline. Uh, you know, the, like, test flakes don't show up all at once. Uh, so that we always needed to have that iron in the fire. Uh, and then there were some changes to the, to the test suite that would need a little bit of, of time to cool off, like re, uh, having the test be randomized. Uh, that was the type of thing where it's a change we made, but we needed to kind of like deal with the consequences for a few weeks after that um, as things started to break.
1: So you mentioned as part of your steps that you would skip the flaky test, but how were you actually identifying the flaky test to begin with?
0: Mm-hmm. So we use a really simple heuristic there, which is, if a test fails on our master branch, it's a flake. Right. So we require all branches to have a passing green CI build. Right. Uh, and so we just said, if something is red on the master branch, uh, that's that's not okay. Uh, and that is considered a flake. Because it was green at one point, so we know it, at the very least, we have something uh, a test that is not deterministic so
1: that's a really smart way to go about it so thank you so much for writing this blog post of course we'll link it to it in the show notes but i think this is very relevant to our listener base who are working on on very large legacy ruby on rails applications and will definitely want to improve their test speed i know for a fact my test suite can take up to a half hour to run so i will definitely be going through this and running through those tips so before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Rails communities is.
0: We were joking before the show. Uh, you either die a hero or you live long enough to become legacy software. And Rails 1.0, I think is 15 years old at this point. Right? Uh, and there are a lot of people uh, who, I, who I work with who were born after Ruby was, was created, right? So uh, Ruby and Rails are becoming, to some degree, legacy software. It's like the old stuff. It's like my, maybe like how I viewed like Java or uh, you know, C++. Um, it's the stuff that the old folks use. Um, so I think the, the community needs to be aware of that and, and needs to continue to engage folks that are just entering the, uh, in, entering the workforce uh, I think the, the workforce uh, or the, the typical software engineer uh, has changed a lot over the last even just five or ten years which is, which is great to see and, we, and I think the, the Rails community needs to continue to be welcoming to uh, folks of all, all backgrounds
1: I couldn't agree more so Kelly how can listeners follow you?
0: Uh, folks can find me on Twitter I'm just Kelly Sutton uh, or if you want to read more blog posts uh, like the one that we talked about today uh, I'm just at uh, com.
1: Awesome, it was so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for pro- providing all these great insights about CI pipelines, and we really appreciate all your work. Uh, thank
0: you very much for having me, Brittany